Okay, folks, welcome to a special edition of the Drop Zone, special in part because we are rolling out the top 100 courses in the world list, and also special because we have a guest from the future. Lucas Michel is joining us from Australia, and he's going to break down well, a few things about golf course architecture, about the list, about what we got wrong, what we got right, and uh, hopefully just make us all a little bit smarter. Lucas, welcome. Yeah, oh, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, exciting to chat, chat old golf architecture with you, with you guys. It'll be, it'll be fun. What makes a good golf course, Lucas? <laughs> starting, Let's get right to it. <laughs> starting with the, uh, the basics, eh? Um, I think for me, I mean, it's it's something to everyone, something you know, different to everyone. So for me, a great course um, is kind of a combination of fun, interesting challenging visually stimulating um usually they're through really beautiful environments i mean there's a lot of factors which i think is what makes it so difficult to rank golf courses because it's really the the only playing field that is completely different um every every course you go to it's it's a completely different playing field whereas you know other sports the fields are pretty uniform. You've got a little bit of variety in tennis, clay and grass and hard court. But in golf, I mean, we play golf in such varied terrains, environments, climates. And I think that's in part what makes golf a really interesting game to play. Certainly for me, um, constantly keeps me um, interested in the sport. Um, obviously, I play it at a, at a high level competitively uh, and it can get a little stale if you just you're just treating it like almost like a uh, a job whereas for me i really enjoy the architecture and that's kind of what gives golf this sort of richness for me because i can kind of get distracted by all the golf architecture stuff so i mean it's what you want from a golf a golf course but i i think there's a few factors that yeah like i mentioned before that that really make it um fun enjoyable and you know constantly interesting to play I wanted to dive into the middle of things there, but but partly just as a way of introducing uh, you and your expertise. I mean, you're a little bit of a, a white whale in the golf world in that you are an extremely high-level player, played in major championships, and you are also now entering a pretty high-caliber world of golf course architecture. Um, could you just give us a little bit of a synopsis on, on your background and where you're you know, approaching, I guess, this architecture world from as a as a player and as a golf fan? Yeah, I, I, I started playing golf uh, at about eight years old. No one in my family played. Um, I picked it up. I had a neighbor who was a good player. He gave me a cut-down club, and I just sort of started at it. And um, I was an only child, and it's a, it's a sport where you can kind of play it by yourself, and you don't need someone else really to, to play it with. So I just loved going out and, and playing golf by myself. Um, and um, my parents got me some lessons. I joined a local club nearby, had a really fun short course, nine holes. Um, so that's kind of where I'd spend all my summers and um, after school and uh, just trying to get better at the game. And then sort of, you know, went through high school as a, as a good player, um, considered looking at college, um, but it's just tough coming from Australia. You don't really get as much exposure as you do, obviously, playing the, the junior events in America. So 
decided to stay in Australia, but moved to Melbourne. I grew up in Perth. When I moved to Melbourne, I joined a club, Metropolitan, um, and Mike Clayton um, is a member there, a golf course architect. And I had some interest in architecture before that. Um, Mike actually redesigned the course that I grew up playing. And so I was 13 or 14 and, you know, it was, it was sort of a pretty formative sort of process watching that happen. I was really intrigued by everything that went into it. And I was sort of had a some somewhat of an interest in, in architecture and construction because I was doing an engineering degree. So kind of worlds collided and I met Mike and we became good friends in, in Melbourne. And I continued playing really high-level competitive golf in Melbourne and, and was able to travel and uh, played British AMs, US AMs. Um, and in 2019, um, I won the US Mid-Avenue, which uh, comes with obviously uh, exemptions to the Masters in US Open. So um, that was amazing. And, and at around a similar time, I actually started working for Mike. He um, split off from his old business, formed a new one with new partners and he needed some help in Australia to to um, just work on stuff that he he he's not really experienced with like the 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 side the technical side of the industry in terms of drawing you know marking up plans that sort of stuff he's more of like a golf theory guy you'll see he's got stuff on Twitter he writes um, articles for Golf Australia uh, our national body so um he's more involved with the writing sort of side of things. So he needed help with the technical elements. And, and that's kind of where I came, came on board and started working with him. And um, yeah, that's sort of where, where, where I'm at with, with my involvement with golf, I suppose. I think for some people, there is like a moment in time where in their career, where they start to get really into golf course architecture. I wasn't into it uh, for a lot of my golf playing life. And then suddenly it started to make sense. I felt like I was like baptized. Did, have, did you have a moment that you look back to like, that's when it's changed for me. That was the course that changed things for me. Yeah. For me, um, it was moving to Melbourne. I mean, Melbourne is one of the big golfing cities in the world. I think there's, Oh, there's three or four courses on the top 100 list that are that are from Melbourne, and then there's a depth of golf in Melbourne as well, where you know Mackenzie obviously had his influence, but then you know building Royal Melbourne, but he then influenced a bunch of other people within Melbourne to heighten the level of golf course architecture. So Melbourne is one of the great golf cities in the world, probably behind you know New York, Philly, and London. So it's it's a really cool place. There's so much great stuff to see, and when you kind of move there like I did and you immerse yourself with that stuff it's I found it very hard not to uh become very interested in in what in what golf course architecture is he put London up there yeah London that surprised me a little bit yeah London the London Heathlands even though uh, I was just there actually a couple of weeks ago so uh, that's probably oh, why it's recency, recency bias. bias but <laughs> yeah exactly um but uh I mean there's probably i i personally think there's probably four courses in the top 100 in london um and but you've got the depth of golf in london is incredible i think it's because you had like harry colt and john abercrombie and you had all these guys and tom simpsons you had you had kind of like philly where you had five or six architects that just were just going at it in in philly where in london it was kind of the same just different guys what's the biggest difference 
um, in golf culture in Australia versus the U.S. Having spent time in both places, I think a lot of it comes down to the conditioning and uh, the culture of having firm, fast golf courses. I think that's kind of like the starting point. If you want to pinpoint it as um, from the golf course side, I think that's a big thing because, I mean, I'm on the greens committee at my club and almost all we talk about is keeping the course firm. We don't talk about, you know, green or making it look like, like it's a you know beautiful green playing field. It's all about how it plays. And um, yeah, so I think it all kind of starts with the sort of firm, fast mentality that we have. And we're very lucky. We've got a good climate for it. We don't get a lot of rainfall. When we do get rainfall, it's pretty kind of light. Um, it's not going to completely swamp things. So um, we're lucky with the climate. So I think, yeah, I think the firm, fast um, culture that we have in Australia, and particularly in Melbourne, is is a big part of it. Um, but I think I think America's a little bit ahead on certain fronts. I think in terms of architecture, I think the the renovation, restoration mindset, you guys are a little more ahead. Uh, you got it right for a little bit longer. You're a little ahead of us on vegetation stuff. I think we're we're still dealing with sort of issues to do with trees that are, you know, propped up because basically, you know, things were left unchecked for a number of years and trees, they naturally just get bigger and, <laughs> and they also spread and you get more of them and you just at some point you got to come back and peel things back and reveal the great architecture. So I think you guys are a little ahead on, on that stuff as well. Um, but, yeah, I think for, for Australia and Melbourne in particular, I think we get the, the playing conditions right. Do you feel like you kind of need to fly the flag for Australia courses in the ranking? I, I know you didn't put them number one, mm -hmm. but you did rank them uh, higher and they are mm -hmm. great, right? A lot of people rank them high, but there's not that many Australian rankers. So do you kind of feel like a little bit of like you need to speak for your homeland? Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, I'm lucky I get to, I've been able to travel extensively and I always look forward to to traveling extensively and then coming back and then in a short period of time being able to compare the best courses potentially around the world that I've played on a trip to then come straight to Melbourne and look at, okay, like let's, let's really break things down and have a look at how good these courses in Melbourne are. And I think, I think the, the rankings I've got in there probably reflect hopefully accurately what I think. I'm, I'm not trying to boost any of the Australian courses. There's probably, one or two in there that I've actually knocked down um, a category or two. I think I think I think my Kingston Heath rankings a little not not as high as maybe the golf magazines got it, but that's just maybe I view things a little bit differently to the to the panel. But um, yeah, I just try and I, I just try and be accurate. I know that there's um, there there aren't that many Australian panelists, and and obviously with the travel, the lack of travel into Australia, particularly. I mean, none of the panelists would have really visited Australia in the last two years, maybe, um, maybe a few in the very early stages of the ranking period. So that may, you know, that lack of, and we talked about it before, recency bias probably means maybe some of the Australian courses deserve maybe a little, a little, a little boost, but um, yeah, I just try and be accurate. I, I, I generally don't, uh, don't try and like throw things around just for the sake of it. 
we uh we like to pride ourselves on having the best ranking in the world but mostly just because we're on the golf magazine team we haven't actually gone through the rating process so for the uninitiated what is this process like you've gone through it now twice i think yeah i think i joined in yeah my first list was the 2019 um 2019 2020 list so um the process i think we've got around 100 raiders i think it's like 105 or something like that 107 so it's a it's a small panel compared to some of the other ones i know golf dieters can i mean they might have like a thousand panelists or something like that so we've got a much smaller panel it's a bit more curated and selected by the um ran morissette who's the editor um, of golf architecture golf magazine um and so yeah it's a little bit of a more selective panel um it's mainly choosing guys and girls that that really kind of know their stuff i think is the kind of priority um that do travel a lot that do see a lot but you know ran kind of vets it all and make sure they're the right people <clears throat> but in terms of like criteria there's no real criteria that he offers it's kind of just what do you think? I trust your opinion. And so we go through and he sends out an Excel spreadsheet. And obviously not everyone on the panel has played every golf course on the list. I mean, not even close. So um, there's a, there's a short list of about, I think it's three or 400 golf courses. And then we then go through and for each golf course, if we've played it, we kind of peg it in the, in the bucket that, we think it fits in so i might not have played for instance cypress point but i probably know that it's going to be in the one to three or four to six uh, four to ten bucket for me so i can kind of know that okay if i've played everything in the top 10 except cypress point i'm going to probably put nine courses in my top 10 because i know cypress is going to sit in there somewhere so when i'm filling stuff in i've got an awareness of where other courses that i haven't played will, will fit and then I just fill in my buckets and leave a little bit of wiggle room for when I do hopefully happen to play the future courses. So yeah, that's kind of how it works. You kind of fill out the bucket and you kind of just gauge it based on my experience. So yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people just assume that every single Raider uh, or ranker is filling out, well, Pine Valley's number one and Cypress is number two on their list and St. Andrews is three. And some course is number 67 and the next course is, you know, that you can think of is 87. Um, but that's not the case. There are buckets. And uh, one thing that I think weighs heavily in Pine Valley's favor is that this uh, aggregation of submissions, Pine Valley was never outside of the top, I believe, 20 bucket or top 25 bucket. Everyone that submitted has Pine Valley in that. And I don't think any other course has that, I guess, distinction. Um, for you, mm -hmm. for you, I don't, I don't know if you care to, to say where you put Pine Valley, but it is number one on our list. It's, it's lead over number two uh, increased this year. And it's such an interesting thing because Dylan and I have both played that course and it has been number one since we were born, since you were born as well. And uh, everyone always asks me, like, what's the best course you ever played? And I have to say that course. But then when they ask me what makes it so great, I kind of have a hard time explaining it. So I'm going to 
mm-hmm. toss that question your way. It's kind of a tricky question. <laughs> yeah, what, what, what is the Pine Valley difference that makes it number one? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've been fortunate to play it twice. Um, and I think it's kind of just got the combination of everything I was kind of talking about in that first question. Um, it's, it's, for starters, it's a beautiful environment. It's an incredible environment. Um, pine trees, sand, open exposed sand, very visually stimulating. Um, but then you've got a golf course that's on incredible terrain that's just routed perfectly. I mean, you've got so much variety in, in, in the way it's routed. Every hole is completely different. There's not a lot of like parallel back and forth. It kind of meanders its way across the terrain very short green to tee walks, which I really enjoy. It makes walking a golf course fun. I, I'd certainly prefer to walk a course than, than ride a cart around it. And there's definitely no cart riding at Pine Valley. Um, so you've got this beautiful terrain that the route traverses great, greatly. And then you've just got incredibly demanding golf shots, which as someone who's a good player, it's certainly, um, I pre- prefer that. It really challenges a player like me, which is, kind of incredible given that it was designed, you know, in the early 1900s, you know, with completely different equipment, how tough the golf shots are around there. But I still think that an average player, maybe not a beginner, but an average player can still get their way around there. Um, the green complexes are outstanding, just really interesting um, contours, got a lot of... Um, kind of asymmetry in them like so there'll generally be one side that's an easy miss and one that, that's a tough miss and you obviously want to be veering toward the uh the easy miss but then you left if you're on the green you've then got a tougher putt so there's a lot of strategy when it comes to that um it's kind of it's it's just got everything it makes you think um sometimes makes you shake in your boots on some of the shots you've got to play it's visually beautiful. And like I said, the routing just traverses the beautiful terrain so well. So I think it's, it's kind of got everything all rolled up into one. Did you like it there? (laughs) Yeah. I love it. The Pine Valley vibe. Yeah. I still haven't stayed there. Um, but it's, it's a cool place for sure. And you know, like a pretty understated little kind of clubhouse in the bottom of the hill, like kind of hidden away. It's, I, I liked it a lot. It's a, it's an awesome place. It's definitely a very old school. I mean, it feels like a, just a throwback place, um, mm-hmm. which is true of various different golf cathedrals, I guess. But Pine Valley in particular feels like you're going to summer camp in the, you know, 60s or something. Um, how does being a good player change your perspective on course architecture? Like, what are the advantages there? And then what are potential blind spots? I think the advantages is that quite often when I play golf courses and particularly for tournaments i mean in as an amateur golfer we play some great golf courses so um, a lot of the courses on the list that i've played i've actually played kind of in tournaments um royal poor rush i played tournaments there pinehurst um so obviously wingfoot last year um so i've i kind of get a different perspective in in that regard i think i'm so engaged with the architecture with with scoring lower, I think um, it really makes me analyze every green complex. Like I'm, if I'm going out there in a practice round, I'm looking at every miss, how every contour was created on those greens to try and read my putts better. But 
I'm also seeing it from from an architecture perspective as well. It really sinks into my memory what what's what's on that golf course. And so I think I'm just more engaged than your typical radar. I think sometimes I probably put the blinkers on a little bit and I probably miss stuff that's relevant to average golfers because whether a golf course is good or not isn't just about whether it's good for me, but it needs to be kind of good for everyone and interesting for everyone. So perhaps I might sometimes miss stuff that that makes a golf course great for an average player. But for me, you know, it might just be boring. So I kind of, I try and keep my eyes open, but I'll probably miss stuff like that when, when I'm playing a tournament on a place. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's certainly an advantage of, of being a, a competitive player and seeing places. And, you know, quite often I'll play a golf course like Pinehurst for the North and South Amateur. I've played that place like five or six times with practice rounds and then you make the match play and then you play it. So it's like, yeah, you, I can see a golf course a number of times in a week, which I think it just keeps revealing itself, particularly if it's a great course. Dylan, why don't we ask you the same question? You're a good player. You are a former touring pro. Like, did, Loosely speaking. Yeah, did, did, do um, you catch on to yeah. things easier? Do, do I miss things because I'm playing from the trees that you actually might be a little more locked in because you're enjoying your time in the fairway? I think that the advantage you have is I think architects have in mind like the best golfers to some extent when they're designing courses. I mean, we've been talking about this recently when uh, even Brandel Chambly was talking about designing courses with, you know, great LPGA players in mind mm -hmm. and how that would look different than, Oh, just let's move the tees forward a little bit. And there's different looks that are going to be involved there. So, I mean, even something as simple as playing the tips and being able to hit all the shots required from back there, I think that that's a big advantage um, because, you know, sometimes we'll play courses and a course will have a certain reputation, but if someone plays it from the up tees, they might say, oh, you know, that wasn't that bad, yeah. which isn't an inherently bad thing, but it's just, well, yeah, you miss, you know, part of the full experience of playing it from like championship length or whatever. Um, I mean, I think as a good player, there's, there's also the risk and technology is part of this, but it is pretty mind blowing the way pro golfers make certain parts of a course just completely irrelevant. So I think what you can miss with the ball flying, you know, say everyone on the PGA tour can fly at 260 at a minimum and, and almost everyone further than that. You have now 260 yards. You have you know, two and a half football fields of ground that irrelevant. is essentially irrelevant. That, that kind of blows my mind because that is the size of that's bigger than any other playing field in any other sport. And suddenly, you know, that could be blacktop, that could be ocean. <laughs> like it doesn't really matter, you know, with some exceptions about like wind and rain and cold weather. But one of the crazy things about golf course architecture is that the pros are also missing part of it because they're, they just hit the ball so damn far that you just have all this like unused terrain. So not that it's unimportant, but I think that that's one of the, one of the differences where, you know, if we only hit the ball, if, if I've all, I've had a half baked take for a while that maybe the ball should only go like, it shouldn't just roll it back. It should only go like 150 yards. Uh, I'm period. all in on that, but I've had the exact same thinking. I think if we were to start, golf again there's no chance that 
300 yards would be a realistic length for the golf ball to go. I think 100, 150 is wow. like, makes sense, right? It just makes sense. Why God, does the ball need really to go like that this far? Guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm all in on that. Yeah, so I think that, that that's one of the ways. I don't know that you necessarily are missing out, Sean, but I think that um, I think you've now played enough golf that I think you've become smarter about I don't know, just what feels good. And that's, that's what I think is the trickiest part about golf course architecture. And I'm hoping that Lucas can, can help us with like some entryways. Like if you're talking to someone that knows nothing about course architecture, yeah, they're going to have courses that they like and that they don't like, but they might not know why. Mm -hmm. And I know you, I know you've touched on that, but if you're explaining it to like a, a, someone that's never really thought exactly about course architecture. If you're, if you're teaching architecture 101 and trying to make it a little more accessible, how do you do that? What's an effective way to do that? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a tricky one. I mean, I think a golf course fundamentally should make the player think about what they're doing. It shouldn't be a pure test of execution. Um, so Obviously, the difference between the driving range and the golf course is that the driving range kind of is a pure test of execution. A golf course needs to provide options for a player to route their way around, find their own way to the golf hole. So I think ultimately, if there's a core fundamental of how golf kind of golf course are, uh, golf courses, I guess, separate them from one another, I think. I think making the golfer think about what they're doing is kind of the, the the main thing. I don't think there's like a checklist of things that a that a golf course, I guess, needs to do to make itself great. But I think, yeah, I think just making the golfer think about what they're doing, separating it from a pure test of execution, um, is is a big one. And I think you know, width and 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 providing options for players to kind of route their own way. I think that's what St. Andrews and a lot of the great links and a lot of um, courses these days, the, the new modern designs, like I haven't been there, but um, Sand Valley and Mammoth Dunes up there. Like I've heard that they're incredibly wide, particularly Mammoth Dunes. So I think a lot, giving a golfer a lot of room to, to route their way around and, and, and think, I think is, is a good start in terms of providing those options and, um, yeah, great courses provide options. And yeah, I suppose that's where it separates itself as yeah, not a test of execution, but a, a test of um, thinking. One course I really want to get your thought on, and you can almost use it to answer that question that Dylan just asked, is Gray Walls up in mm. Upper Michigan. Mm, um, yeah. I'm from yeah. Wisconsin, and Dylan has yeah. also played uh, Gray Walls. We both played it. And it's a, I, I think it's a totally unique golf course, uh, at least in my experience. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. And, you know, I know that I don't want to expose too much of your submission of your top 100 or so, but I know that gray walls was included for you. So if you can explain like what's going on up as a write-in, yeah, yeah. not just as a selection, but you went out of your way to include yeah, it. So yeah. like, what yeah. about gray walls makes sense for you and says that's a top 100 golf course? Yeah, I think, I think for me that place, it's kind of got everything. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know how it wasn't on the the, the pre-selection list, like the top four hundred or whatever. So I absolutely wanted to write that one in. 
Um, it's probably one I might have ranked a little higher <laughs> just to try and give it a bit of a boost. But, um, you know, I think that place is incredible. It's, it's probably there. It's more the terrain and the piece of land and the views that prop it up a little bit higher than like, if you had that exact same property that was, didn't have any of the views, didn't have these rock, rocky kind of granite walls everywhere. It'd be a really good course, but I think certainly the setting elevates a place sometimes. And that's kind of, you know, the setting is part of a golf course because it was routed in a way to maximize the setting. So you can't really separate the setting from golf course architecture, I don't think, but the setting really makes that place. I mean, you guys talked about it, I think, in, in your podcast uh, a few weeks ago because I think... Oh, my God. He's yeah. sucking up to us now, Sean. Yeah. Um, I, I had a quick... Drop some that. listener, yeah, Lucas yeah. Michelle, on this week. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just... I think it's I think it's incredible. It, it does have that, the width, the playing angles, but uh, Craig Moore, the superintendent, presents it firm and fast, which I think is a big element. Um, obviously, that's something that varies with the the weather and that you play that place in end of the season. It might not be like that, but when I was there, it was just bouncy and fun. Um, yeah. To really, like I was talking about, think your way around, you know, blast and driver on every hole, you're picking lines. It's a little tricky your first time. Cause you got, I mean, you got some holes where you, you don't really see where you're going sometimes. So you're just kind of guessing, but um I think for repeat play, that place is an incredible golf course. Um, yeah, I, I had to put it in my in my top hundred because I I thought it was incredible that it wasn't wasn't actually in that list. Yeah, and let's get to this list a little bit more because uh, you know that we are releasing this pod with the online release of the list. How many of these um, say? top 10 courses have you played I'll, I'll just run through them really quickly but pine valley cypress point st andrews shinnecock national royal county down royal melbourne's west course oakmont augusta and sand hills that's the 10 maybe we should have done yeah. a dramatic reveal there but no no it's okay those are um so i've played let me get one two three four so i've played seven of the 10 um, the, the three I haven't are Cypress Point, National Golf Links, and Shinnecock. Um, so I've, I've played a good kind of proportion of them, I suppose. Um, and all of them rank very, very highly for me. I've got, I think I've got Oakmont and Augusta outside of my 10, which might be controversial. I just mm. think they're a different, I guess, a different test of golf than, than maybe what I prefer. Um, Oakmont is extremely penal, and I know that's what Henry phones was kind of going for. Like it's almost like a different era of golf architecture, which is like the penal era before things got really strategic. So, you know, the fairways aren't super wide. The bunkers are super deep, um, does have a great, really interesting set of greens. But for me, I actually put that outside of my 10 and then Augusta. Um, I've obviously been lucky to, I mean, I've played that place like, I don't know, 10 12 times something like that so Hell yeah. um i've played it a lot and i think it's awesome but I, I for me i just think it could be so much better so that's kind of all right yeah. wait yeah sometimes we yeah. play a game called overrated underrated mm -hmm. properly rated mm -hmm. on this show and it sounds like you would have augusta in that slightly overrated category and i think paint me a picture of of how augusta could or maybe should be better 
I think it's its main limitation is that every year it has to host the biggest, best golf tournament. Mm-hmm. And so they're constantly thinking about how they challenge the best players in the world. But like I was saying before, a golf course doesn't necessarily, that's not necessarily a role, although for Augusta it is their role in a, in a way. But, you know, to, to make the best golf course, you kind of have to make it great for everyone. And I think they've, they've got a, they had a great Alistair McKenzie golf course and it's kind of not really an Alistair McKenzie golf course just because they've made so much change to it. And it's still a really, really good course. And there's, there's a bunch of greens out there that, that are incredible. And one of them's the 16th, which isn't even an Alistair McKenzie green. So like there's stuff that they've done that's fantastic, but I just think, um, yeah, it's, it's not really the McKenzie design that he left with them and, and part of that is because they have to host this, this great tournament every year. And um, that's a limitation um, to them, but um, you know, it's, it's still a fantastic course. I'd love to see them maybe restore Mackenzie's aesthetic of the bunkering. I think that would be cool. Um, you know, mixed up a little, um, not, not so many round shapes, circles kind of things, but actually kind of do something that's a bit more natural, natural and, kind of rugged looking, which is what Mackenzie, that's what he was known for. Um, and then a, a few of the greens would be cool to see restored. There was a cool boomerang green on the ninth, which kind of had like two kind of wings out in front of it that that's completely different now. Not to say the ninth green isn't good, which it, it is really interesting with those three kind of plateaus, but um, it, the old photos of that green look really, really interesting. So I think... Yeah, it'd just be great to see them kind of bring a few things back from from history. I think that would be cool. Sean, what do you think? You what do you think of your boy here taking down Augusta a little bit? I'm all for it, man. I've I've never played Augusta National. Um, Dylan has. Dylan made 17 pars and three bogeys at Augusta National. Uh, zero birdies. 15 pars. I only played 18. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're on the, the nine holes. <laughs> that doesn't add up. Um, no, I, I, I think I think what I'm curious about is is kind of what you said. Like A lot of people will say, oh, you know, Gussie can be better. How do you make it better? It's a little bit, it's a little tricky. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, more, I'm more curious on your, your bottom end of your list because at some point, the ranking goes from the best courses in the world to like elite courses to like great courses to you get closer to a hundred and those are kind of really good courses, but they're definitely down there for a reason. I thought you were going to get really mm-hmm. like, yeah, then you get to the courses that kind of suck <laughs> and the, you know, those 80, like, well, they're pretty no, good. They're all great. But the, the point of the question is like, at what point did like, what's the difference between number 99 for you? or, you know, one that's in the 90 to 100 range and one that's in the 115 to 125 range. It's got to be pretty tricky to kind of parse through that. Yeah, there's not much, there's not much difference there at all. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a tough one. I mean, I've, I go through my list sometimes and I'm like, you know, I've got too many courses in my – because I, I always want to put courses in the 75 to 100 mm. and then I end up with like – and it, it, the list kind of tells you how many you've put in that bucket so I'll often get close to 25, which is the maximum in that bucket. And then I've got to go, oh, now I've got to go like try and peel some away from the bucket because, you know, I just want to put them in the top 100 because I think 
they're worthy of it. But then I know that I haven't played enough courses in the top hundred, but they actually don't deserve to be in there. So it's really hard because I mean, you're really separating almost nothing. And it could, could have been one little tiny factor of your day. Like it might've been just the weather wasn't great or, you know, you had two inches of rain the night before and it was playing soft. So it's like, it's so hard to, to separate. Um, generally, I prefer places that have something different about them that I really like. So I'll, I'll prefer something that's got like three or four world-class golf holes that I just stick in my mind versus 18 like really solid, good golf holes. So I think I prefer seeing something different that maybe I haven't seen before over something that's like, yeah, just like really solid. Like people always talk about Kingston Heath being greater than its kind of sum, like the sum of its parts, greater than the sum of its parts because it's just like really solid for 18 holes. And there's a few world-class holes, like 15, the par three up the hill is outstanding and 14 is really good and 16. And like you've got a bunch of really good holes, but there's nothing that like totally just floors you just because the terrain is like kind of flat and like, it's a beautiful place, but it's just for me, like it doesn't have like the X factor that maybe somewhere else, like um, that might be, you know, similar in the list. I can't really think of it an example, but um, you know, maybe crystal downs, which is 29 on the list. I think that maybe has more wow factor. And there's a few golf holes there that um, I mean, on that front nine, you got like six and seven, which are just, they, they beat anything at Kingston Heath, in my opinion. So it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of, you kind of trying to separate them. And for me, it's the stuff that really sticks in my mind when I think of a golf course that probably makes me bump it up out of, uh, out of maybe the one, 100 to 150 to 75 to hundred. So, yeah. What's your favorite golf hole in the world? That's, that's the toughest question you'll receive today. Yeah. Favorite golf hole in the world. Wow. I don't know if I've ever thought about that, but. It might be an unfair question, frankly. That's why you come on the drop zone to handle the hard-hitting questions. <laughs> While you think yeah. about that, uh, maybe this will inspire some, some thought. When I played Augusta National, mm-hmm. and I talked about this a little bit on our top, top 10 courses podcast we did, it's hard to separate mm-hmm. for me these courses that I've seen in video games and in like on TV from then having the surreal experience of actually playing them in real life. So I got to play Pebble Beach. I got to play Augusta. I think those are probably the two like most famous golf courses in the world, I would say. People have seen those two courses the most. And mm-hmm. you have such anticipation for the shots that you're going to hit and so much excitement about being there and, you know, walking the fairways that you, that you're so familiar with, it's almost like an unfair advantage over any other golf course because you just have such an emotional attachment to them already. And I think that that makes it hard to figure out how to rate them and how to rank them because, you know, you're playing these other courses that you're going in with essentially no preconceived notions, or maybe, you know, you've read about them a little bit, or you've heard about them a little bit, but you don't have that same attachment. I don't know. Um, Mm. I wonder if that's something that you have to combat. And also if you've now thought of your favorite hole in the world, (laughs) I'm going to, okay. So I'll answer the favorite hole 
I think probably the sixth hole at the West Course at Royal Melbourne. It's like a dog leg right, par four. It's got this. It's kind of like you guys may have heard of the cape hole kind of concept, the template. It's basically a cape template. Um, it's got a kind of heroic carry, kind of an angled heroic carry where, you know, the further right you go, the further you cut off, the further you have to hit it. But if you don't, you're stuck in a bunker or some long grass. Um, and then, but the further right you are, the better the angle into the green. And it's this kind of really cool perched green complex with a amphitheater around it of kind of native grasses, um, a big bunker that sticks in the front. The back, so the left pin is the toughest, but all the right pins are really interesting. A really cool contoured green. I mean, it's probably 20% of the surface might be pinnable because it's just severe, but I think that's kind of what makes it interesting a lot of the time. And that's something that I think severe greens are great a lot of the time because almost none of the surface is pinnable, but the fact that you've got such the putts that make you think so much about, you know, the line you're going to take and that you, there is a risk of degreening it. I think that almost makes it more fun, maybe for a good player, maybe not so much for a, a poorer one, but um, yeah, for me, I think, that's something that I immediately thought of, but I had to think about other holes before I maybe decided that that was my favorite. But um, yeah, I think that's a, an unbelievable golf hole. It might be my favorite. Uh, I'm not sure. Sounds like number six at Bay Hill, but maybe just a little, a little bit worse than, than six at Bay Hill. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just got, I think without water, you've just got more recovery options as well. So that's probably another thing as well. Like even if you totally. dump it in the trap or the long grass, you can still do something like you've still got options. So I think that's kind of, that's the other part of it as well. Like even if you mess it up, you've still got the chance to make par. Um, your other question about combating kind of like seeing stuff beforehand and all that. It's tricky. Um, I do try, I mean, I, I'm someone who reads a lot about golf course architecture. I go on golf club Atlas. I go on, you know, I've got a stack of books here of golf, you know, like Tom Doak's Con Confidential Guides and all that. So I try not to read too much about a place, but like you said, when you're playing it on video video games like Pebble, and which I haven't played, but, you know, St. Andrews, um, obviously the old course is always on those video games and Augusta. It, it, it can be tricky. I think, I think the biggest thing I try to focus on, like, I'm obviously going to get a pretty good understanding of the routing from a video game because you kind of understand the terrain and that, but sometimes you don't understand how the routing connects up. So like, for instance, you don't, on a video game, you don't walk from the first green to the second tee and you don't walk from the second green, you know, so you kind of, and then you don't really know in relative terms where the holes are in respect to one another as well. So like, you don't know at Augusta that the seventh green is like right in the middle of the eighth tee. And then you got the mm -hmm. 17th tee behind it, uh, 17th green behind it, 18th tee there. And so I think you, you understand it more when you play it. And I kind of try to focus primarily on like how the routing works. Um, a lot of the time as well, like you'll get previews of other greens. So like when you play the second, you can see where the pin is on the seventh. Um, and, and like, 
certain things like that where you can kind of start plotting out your strategy for other holes um, as you kind of go ahead. And you, you see stuff certainly when you're, when you're walking a course and playing it for real that you don't get, um, that's still part of the architecture um, that you don't get. The other thing you probably don't get as much from a video game is like the greens. You don't really understand the greens and the whole complex as a, as a whole that you, that you do when you play a golf course. So yeah, I probably focus on the routing and how it all connects up. Um, and then the green complexes are probably the two areas that like say on a video game or in, when you're reading something about it, you don't really understand maybe. Yeah. That, that idea of connection is like blew me away about being at Augusta for the first time and how mm -hmm. different it was knowing all of those individual shots from watching the masters. And then what there was, someone was telling me about, it's like, it's a, natural patch matrix corridor model. It's like a, the way you talk about the Augusta national landscape. I don't know right. exactly what it means, but the vibe and those words kind of connected for me of like, you have these, yeah. you have these open spaces, you have spaces that are separated off, but then connect to the rest of the course mm -hmm. essentially. So it, it just gives you this natural flow that like replicates actual nature even though it's, you know, golf Disney world or, or however you'd describe yeah. it. Sean, you had a question. I wanted us to turn to, uh, another place that has a lot of hype. Uh, that would be seven mile beach. Yes. And <laughs> well, of course that is not a golf course yet. Uh, not quite yet. It's no. still, still in no. like concept stage. I, I think maybe, maybe a little further than that. Mm -hmm. You'd have a better clue than us, but you've been working on it. Uh, with a number of people, but mm -hmm. wait, have you been working at like what describe where this course is at okay. and why it's got so much hype? Yeah. So seven mile beach, um, it's in Hobart, Tasmania, uh, like very close to Hobart itself, which is a fairly sizable town. Um, maybe a few hundred thousand people live in Hobart. Um, the site is near the airport. Uh, Hobart Airport. So kind of not like Bandon or not like Bamboogle Dunes or, or Cabot or any of these like up and come like up and coming resorts and that it's, it's very accessible. Um, but it's a piece of land um, on, on seven mile beach. It's you know, beach is seven miles long. So you kind of get the idea. Um, incredible tumbling topography and Mac Goggin who played the, the tour for a bunch of years it's uh, he's the, he's the guy that's been trying to get this project off the ground for like 15, 20 years. So he finally got the funding in place and Mike Clayton was his kind of first port of call to get the thing built. Um, he, he's had a relationship with Mike for a long time and, and I've obviously been working for Mike and Mike also teamed up with um, Mike DeVries and Frank Pont to form Clayton DeVries and Pont uh, about two years ago now. So um, it's going to be CDP. Um, it's going to be their first uh, new build golf course. It's an incredible site. I'd probably, I haven't been to Tara 80, but the land looks very similar. Um, probably, I haven't seen a topo of Tara 80, but from the looks of it, it looks maybe a little hillier. You've got dunes, um, obviously oceanfront dunes, but then it kind of like tapers up to about 20 meters, so 60 feet or so. So you got some sort of taller dunes out sort of in the middle of the property, which kind of means that you're going to have views of the golf course from every, 
uh, sorry, views of the water from almost every hole on the golf course. Um, just because of the way the land works, it kind of like tilts up. And so the holes that are furthest away from the water almost have the best views because you're looking across the golf course and the sea. Um, it was a former pine plantation. So um, kind of some scattered pine trees on it, although um, a lot of them had to go in the removal process because when you're trying to route a golf course um, and you've kind of got the thing covered in pine trees, you can't really see <laughs> can't really see what you're doing until you kind of take them off. Like you can produce, you know, look at a topo and try and sort of produce a routing off that. And that's what Mike and Mike uh, did, Mike DeVries and Mike Clayton did. But there was so much nuanced stuff that trying to figure out where a green site goes, you know, things are going to move around. Um, so basically most of the pine trees had to go just because um, my, neither of the mics could get down there during the removal process due to COVID. So, um, but yeah, it's an incredible land piece of land. I'd almost describe it like Pine Valley site, but on the ocean. <laughs> like, wow. um, that would be like the most similar thing I could think about. Um, and yeah, there's, there's room for, I think they've got like the option for an 800 acre piece of property, which you could put like four golf courses on there realistically. So the other side of the property is five mile beach. And then there's room for another golf course besides Seven Mile Beach and then probably room for a par three course at the, on the tip of the peninsula. Jeez. So you could have four golf courses there um, with, you know, next to an international airport that you could fly people in directly from Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, Perth, Brisbane, everywhere in Australia. Um, you just need to connect in via, you know, Melbourne, Sydney or Brisbane if you're an international. So extremely accessible um public golf um and yeah just looking forward to getting getting started with you know we've got basically this blank canvas now and i think mike devries lands in australia in literally a week Ooh. so um we can get down there from mid-december um tasmania's kind of strict with their border at the moment like <laughs> with all these like internal borders in australia like we can't like as a person from melbourne or sydney i can't go to Perth or Tasmania at the moment, but they're all kind of like, they're just being slow rolling out the vaccine. So once they hit their target, they're, they're going to open up. So um, looks like we'll get down there from mid December and then kind of shovels in the ground after Christmas and get started um, building. So I was lucky enough. I got some experience out in uh, Florida with Gil Hans's crew on excavators and bulldozers. So I'm kind of ready to jump at it and get building. Is that the role you'll be playing is in the bulldozer? Do you know exactly kind of what you'll be doing? I, I got a pretty good idea. I think Mike, Mike DeVries is like, he's the ultimate golf course builder. Like he's a guy that literally will spend 12 hours on site if he could in a dozer, just pushing to making cool golf architecture. So he's kind of very unique in the industry that he's like the architect and the builder. Gil, Gil Hans is a lot like that, but, he just kind of has to spread himself out over more projects. Whereas Mike kind of prefers keeping a small number of projects and just yeah, immersing himself in it. Um, I'll be yeah, definitely just helping out Mike. Um, I don't have as many hours in a bulldozer as he does. So he, he might just say to me, you know, you know, take down that dune a bit or, um, you know, that third fairway is just like this heaving dunes, you know, probably just need to, you know, tone that down 50%. So just spend three days in a dozer doing that. 
Um, but yeah, hopefully just plenty of time in a dozer and just getting to understand the whole construction phase of a project. I'm sort of putting my competitive golf to the side for, for six months or so just to yeah wow. jump in on this because projects like this don't come up very often, um, particularly in an accessible site where I can just jump on a plane, head back to Melbourne for the weekend. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it a lot. How about your competitive golf career? You mentioned you're, you're putting it on hold for a few months, but where do you stand in terms of, I mean, you're an amateur, you're an incredibly decorated amateur golfer. Um, do you mm -hmm. still have aspirations of playing professionally and, and being a touring pro or, or where do you, where do you sit right now? Yeah, just, I mean, I'm trying to figure it out myself, to be honest. Um, I, I, before COVID, I certainly had pro ambitions. Um, I thought it was going to be a good, um, yeah, sort of stepping stone for me to play the majors and then look at a professional career after that. But um, COVID's kind of without any Q schools running, um, being in Australia where travel's been like very limited and, and difficult. Um, I've had to reassess things, but I think after Seven Mile Beach, if there's a lull in the work, the golf architecture work, I would like to get my game sharp again and probably have a go at Q schools because I've tried the Australian Q school. I got a card, but I didn't take it up just because it wasn't like a top card that I would get into like the big events like the Australian Open and Australian PGA. Um, so I remained amateur and that was the year I won the mid-am, but um, I'd probably look to, to doing Q school in Japan and Asia and Europe, um, potentially, and then, you know, see where it goes from there. But I think, it, I think it's probably a matter of when, not if I phase into the golf architecture. Um, I think that's something that I'm so, so interested in that I think I'll do it eventually at some point. It just, it just depends on when I, I really jumping all in into the architecture stuff because I do have some good opportunities with CDP's team. As a uh, very successful mid-amateur, do you think that uh, someone who had a, you know, fledgling pro career, didn't really go anywhere, should consider becoming a mid-am? This, this feels like a targeted question. <laughs> There's, there is a lot of... Uh... Strangely specific there, Sean. I would say there's a lot of reinstated AMs that play the mid-AM. I would say, I don't know what the percentage is, probably like a third of the field is reinstated amateurs. So I think it's something that's been done. I think, <laughs> I'm trying to think, of, I'm assuming some of the winners of the mid-AM have actually been reinstated. Yeah, Alley would be a good, um, good yeah. example. Another friend of the yeah. show. But, but would you say that those those reinstated amateurs are like a, a stain on the game. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't really care. I mean, I'm a guy that's looking at like turning pro anyway. So I'm, I'm going to be one of those stains later on. Right. So <laughs> I think, um, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. Like they still get invites to the crump and the big mid-am events anyway, even though they're reinstated. So I don't think those those uh, those courses and clubs are kind of looking at them that way that much anymore. Maybe 30 years ago, but I think these days it's kind of like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, sorry. We've, we've brought you on here to talk about courses, and we're, I pivoted there pretty hard only because my, my co-host, 
uh, is a really good golfer. Used to be, a, well, he's, st- he's still a professional. Technically a professional golfer. And so, you know, when people like yourself come on, decorated mid-amateur, uh, I just like to ask the question. And I, I really kind of owe it more so to like the people who really want Dylan to have a, a playing career that matters. So... Problem is right now I'm not very good on either scale, so not good enough for it to matter in either competition. But um, all right, I want to just finish with just a couple, uh, couple final course takes from Lucas. One being like, what's a course that that you think is super underrated that you know maybe isn't on people's radar, um, but you think just rocks? I think we sort of spoke about it. Gray walls, I think, is obviously an obvious one. I think. I'm just going to be biased and just say Please. anything that Mike DeVries does. So wow. um, Kingsley club, I think that place is unbelievable and they really dial down the conditioning. Um, I was also fortunate. I saw three, these three courses out in uh, Grand Rapids, the mines, diamond Springs and pilgrims run. I think they're all great, like kind of cheap public golf. Um, options. He's been watching a lot of no laying up content. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I actually haven't watched those episodes yet, but those, I mean, I went out there and I just love them. So I think basically anything that Mike DeVries does is like heavily underrated. Um, I think Pine Tree in Florida is a really good golf course. Um, mm. You know, it doesn't get a lot of fanfare, but um, the Dick Wilson design. Um, home in Australia, I would say there's a few courses like there's a course called woodlands um in like the sand belt that literally gets like no attention but it's an incredible design i think tom dokes quoted as saying something along the lines of you know this place had more doctors and lawyers that were members and and mckenzie had kind of walked past the course in 1926 it would have been like you know in the top 10 in australia but just you know it doesn't doesn't get the fanfare just because it's it doesn't have the reputation of of places like my home club metropolitan or um victoria or royal melbourne um another one in in melbourne or in the melbourne area and sandbelt area is um a new design peninsula kingswood um which it was an existing course that um they merged with another club and then sold the land and then basically invested in the two golf courses there to redevelop them and Mike Clayton was involved with his uh, previous business, OCCM, Ogilvy Clayton, Cocking and Mead. Um, and they redesigned both courses there. And I think the North course got rated six, five or six in Australia on the, on, on one of our lists. But uh, I think it's only a matter of time before that appears in the uh, world top 100, because it's really good. Just need some more Raiders to get down there and see it. Cause it's, it's unbelievable. So um, there's a, there's a few. Um, that's terrific make of them what you will and then what's on your bucket list what what are you hoping to check off once you know travel is a little bit easier um that you've just been dying to play there's yeah there's a few few areas where i haven't played in the u.s i haven't been out to eastern long island so um haven't played shinnecock national maidstone any of those fries head um haven't played anything in Chicago. So there's a, definitely a couple there that I want to play Come on over. Um, yeah. And haven't played anything on the Monterey Peninsula either. So they're probably my three spots in the States where there's some great stuff that I haven't seen. And then 
Um, I've seen a lot in Scotland. I, I spent six months at the University of St Andrews. So I was traveling around Scotland for like, yeah, all, the whole of that period. I played St Andrews like 20 times. So I've seen a lot in Scotland. Probably only a couple I haven't. Macrahanish is like one place that I've heard amazing things about that I haven't seen. Um, Ireland's a little bit of a, you know, I've, I've played Lahinch and Doonbeg and Port Marnock and Royal Port Rush and Royal County Down, but there's a lot of like really good stuff um, that I need to see. The new St. Patrick's links at Rosa Penna looks really good. Um, and then you got like Bally Bunyan and like Waterville and all these places. So um, Ireland needs some more play and, and also Northern England. Um, so out near like Liverpool and kind of all the open venues there and um, some of the stuff like Formby and Gant and that sort of stuff. So there's, there's still got a long see, bucket um, list. But I, there's, long yeah. Bucket I don't list. really have, I don't really have like, like real bucket list items. I just kind of like going around and seeing stuff. And I know they're the areas that there's, you know, a few spots I haven't, I haven't seen a little bit of stuff in Asia as well. I've played Hirono in Japan, but I want to see it after they, uh, after the work that's been done there. So, um, and then there's, you know, a bunch of other courses in Japan worth playing, but, um, yeah, there's, there's plenty to see. Oh, New Zealand as well. Haven't been to New Zealand. So, um, we're hoping to go out to Tari and TRI, um, before we start Seven Mile Beach, just to make sure we don't build something that looks exactly the same because the land looks really similar. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, there's there's plenty on the list. All right. Well, we hope to be uh, part of one of these future bucket list <laughs> destination uh, checking off. Sean's in Chicago, so he can take care of your mm-hmm. needs there. I'm in Seattle, so I don't have as many take obvious to chambers. We've got some great public golf out here. Mm. Chambers yeah, based Chambers. quest to get back in the top hundred. My buddy Will Davenport, who's a top one hundred panelist, went out there and played the uh, the US four ball, and he ranks it very highly. So he's probably in his top one hundred. So there's a there's a radar that'll prop it up for you. There you go. Score one for the good guys. <laughs> yeah. Sean, are you content with our guy here? I am content. I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like uh, I got really jealous as I think a lot of our viewers will get after listening to Lucas, but uh, that's the point of it. We all got bucket lists to chase after, so maybe we'll do it together. Lucas, where can our listeners track you down, keep track of you, follow you? Um, I post a little bit on Instagram at Lucas Michelle, um, L-U-K-A-S-M-I-C-H-E-L, and then Twitter, I'm at Lucas J. Michelle. So someone took the took the Lucas Michelle there, so I had to add the J. <laughs> but um yeah, probably they're the two places. Um, I've done some other podcasts, but uh, this one's clearly the best Not one I've been ones. on, right? Yeah. That's right. Well, we hope to have you back, and uh, and we hope to see you in person sometime soon. But until then, play well, design well, and uh, rate even better, I guess. Thanks, Lucas. No, thanks for having me, guys. Enjoyed it a lot. <laughs>